Welcome to Gibraltar Stories. I'm Lindsay Weston and this is the fourth part of The Closed Frontier 50 Years On, a podcast mini-series about the closure of the border between Gibraltar and Spain. There was an absence in our lives that we couldn't quite, as young, as young girls, my sister and myself, and we couldn't quite put our finger on it, we didn't understand, and, and we grew up in a closed border Gibraltar and that was normal. That was normal for us. Fifty years ago, on the 8th of June 1969, Spain's General Franco closed the frontier, the land border between Gibraltar and Spain. Families were split. Some faced the difficult choice of having to decide which side of the border to live on. Supply lines were cut, stopping anything crossing from Spain, including food, medical oxygen and communion wine. Spanish workers were forced to leave their jobs in Gibraltar and some even lost their businesses. That resulted in many of them having to move away from the area in search of employment elsewhere, as well as leaving a huge hole in the labour force here. Ferry services between the Rock and the Spanish port of Algeciras across the Bay of Gibraltar ceased to operate and telephone lines were cut off. The only way in and out of Gibraltar was by air or by sea. The main route was the Tangier-Gibraltar ferry. Well, I found myself on the beautiful daylight today On the Tangier-Gibraltar ferry Letting me here with so many things to say So far in this series, I've looked at the build-up to the closure, the impact it had on supplies getting into Gibraltar, as well as the human stories of families living through this period in history. This week, I'm sticking with that theme and focusing on life behind the frontier for those who faced a dramatic change to their lifestyles, as well as those who spent their formative years restricted to the three square miles that make up Gibraltar. Paula Galliano was a young woman at the time and had foreseen the events before they happened. I can remember thinking that I wouldn't particularly like to stay in Gibraltar if there was a closed frontier. I suppose I was so used to being able to go across whenever I wanted to for shopping, the nightlife, tapas bars, tapas runs, you know, all the social aspects. Um, But then I got married and, and things changed. But we had a good life, actually, when the frontier was closed. I suppose you could call it almost a sort of World War II comradeship. We, we just got used to it. We made the best of it. There was a defiance among the Gibraltarians about their situation. They were determined they would not be beaten, even when the last ferry left Gibraltar for the final time, severing the last link with the Spanish mainland, as GBC's David Hall remembered. The stage was set by Spain to withdraw the Algeciras ferry, thus severing land and sea communications with Gibraltar. The last ferry sailed into history at 7.30 in the evening of June the 26th, 1969. As the ferry cast off and steamed towards Algeciras, there were cheers from the crowd. Gibraltar was taking the punishment in the best British tradition, cheering its troubles away. 
One young man, though, found the closure came at just the wrong time for him, just as he was beginning to taste freedom. Local historian Tito Vallejo-Smith. I was 21 when they, well, they cut the wings off me, to put it bluntly. We were already going to Spain. We were going, the Costa del Sol was starting to sprout, you know, with camping sites and, and lovely girls all over the place. And, and, that, and it was cut very short, you know. That was the biggest regret our, our generation had, you know, that, that we were starting to live and spread our wings and, and they were suddenly cut. Our only um, escapades were to England, to Portugal, to Morocco. You know, I used to swim as well. And we used to go to Morocco to swim with the Moroccans, you know, with Gaza. And that's one thing that sprouted in Gibraltar a lot, sports. Sports was everybody's um, hobby. I mean, I remember I used to swim, I used to play basketball, handball, and sometimes I had a, a match at the same time on the same day. And which one do I go to? You know, as bad as that. You know, people were playing many, many different types of sports. And it was great. For children who were accepting of what was happening around them, there was an awareness that something had changed, even though they didn't fully appreciate what was going on at the time. Dr Jennifer Ballantyne Pereira, director of the Gibraltar Garrison Library, says although she had no memory whatsoever of the actual closure, she can recall events in the lead-up to it. I remember the referendum because my mother uh, made uh, some lovely dresses for us. There were flowery dresses, I seem to recall, but they were red, white and blue dresses, which wouldn't have had any significance other than the fact that the referendum was a sovereignty referendum, Gibraltar asserting its wishes to remain British. And so I remember the referendum as a party, and I don't remember anything else. I don't remember the closure of the border, but I do know that uh, there was something different in, in, our, in our lives, in our day-to-day, but also within our family. My grandmother owned vineyards in Spain, in, in Manilva, and over the summers we'd go during the Vendimia, and we'd stay there, and, and, and we were a part of that. I was very young, but I do have those memories. And then that stopped. And not that I missed it, but there was an absence in our lives that we couldn't quite, as young, as young girls, my sister, myself, and we couldn't quite put our finger on it. We didn't understand. And, and we grew up in a closed border Gibraltar, and that was normal. That was normal for us. Our memories of an open border were really uh, very much based on a childhood experience where you're not fully engaged with what's going on around you. Do you feel you suffered at all as a child, being restricted to this small area? No, it was the, it, this is what I knew. This was our home, these were our lives. I, I, I did not, uh, so there was no concept of a Gibraltar that went beyond the border, quite frankly. But there was a concept of a Gibraltar with an airport, with an airfield. We could travel to, to England so, so we didn't travel that much, uh, but we did on school trips. I went to the UK on two, possibly even three occasions. I was very lucky. We, we never felt as if we had been in any way deprived or, or affected by the fact that we were living in such enclosed circumstances.
Life carried on once things had settled down in the weeks following the frontier closure, but there was something happening on the other side of the border which made international headlines. Tito Vallejo-Smith again. I was in the Gibraltar Regiment at the time and I was in the TA. And I remember I was in London in 1969, September, and I was in the Science Museum having a, a meal, and this chap next to me said, where are you from? I said, Gibraltar. I said, oh, haven't you heard Franco's taking it over? I said, what do you mean? I said, yeah, the news has said that in October, Franco's going to run over to, and take Gibraltar. I said, what the hell? So immediately I phoned my dad. I said, what, what, what's this I hear? I said, no, there, there's rumors that Franco wants to invade Gibraltar. So I left Britain at the end of September, came back to Gibraltar, and I had to do what we used to do before, a 15-day camp with the army. So the first thing they did was take us down to the border. There we were, I was posted to the border, mixed with the, with the Black Watch regiment, you know. So there was the Black Watch and Gibraltar regiment all mixed. So if you're going to get the job, I'm going to get it too, you know what I mean? And I remember being on this bunker overlooking the, the actual fence. And uh, one night I was with these two Scottish fellows then, a Spanish patrol walked beneath us. And one of them says, uh, you speak the lingo? I said, yeah. I said, well, say something. So I said in Spanish, good night. Well, I'm not sure. How are things? And they looked up. Oh, hello. And we had, a, we had a conversation. One of them says to the other, he said, look at him. He's been here two minutes and we're having a conversation. And we've been here two months and we haven't got a word out of them. You know? <laughs> That's how it was, you know. So what happened was, it was a very um, tight uh, situation, that. And... Uh, the British sent a big task force here. We had lots of destroyers, frigates, and I remember HMS Woolwork, which had been converted into a commando carrier with lots of helicopters, and Gibraltar was crawling with soldiers, even in your pockets, you know. And our Spanish friends said, look, uh, uh, we'd better think it over again, and, and they withdrew, because we had all these tanks at Sierra Carbonera, you know, that hill in Spain. Mm. All the tanks were lined up there. I've got photographs of all that. The, 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 uh, the barracks in La Linea and San Roque and Almoraima were all full of soldiers. So they, re they, they were really going to be in business, you know. And it's the first time I've ever patrolled with live ammunition, let's put it that way. <laughs> and luckily that never happened. Uh, but that, that was a very tight uh, situation. Not many people in Gibraltar knew about that situation. I know because I was involved in it, but many... Oh, did that happen? Yes, it re really happened, you know. Aside from any potential threats from across the border, Gibraltarians adapted to their newly restricted existence. William Surfati arrived back from studying and working in England just days before the frontier closed. And although it was a dramatic shift from the freedom he'd known in the UK, he says Gibraltar remained a happy place. This was only, was only two and a half miles long. We were restricted to that. People had cars because they had had cars to, to travel into Spain in. So uh, people took their leisure here, you know, and uh, really it was we were quite adaptable to all that. There, there was perhaps uh, more family and social life than, than there is now because one was here all the time. So we were here for work and leisure and everything else. Um, and it, it was a happy place. I mean, I, I can't complain about that at all. People weren't uh, morose or unhappy. For teenagers, though, the sudden change in circumstances weren't ideal, and it led to many moving away from home once they were old enough. As a young artist, Ambrose Aviano was one of them. I had given up going to visit my family by the age of 14, 15. I had given up going and visit. We were, used to go very regularly to see my cousins and my aunties. But by then... Uh, no, uh, we were discovering life in Jib, what Jib had to offer, and Spain became small in one sense. Um, so we didn't miss it so much 
to start off. But then slowly I realized that we had lost the access to a country, to landscapes, to culture. And that turned my eyes towards London. And I moved, I moved to London. Another frustrated teenager was Philip Valverde. At first, he was happy to make do with the many clubs and events which had sprung up in Gibraltar. It kept everybody together, I suppose. Everybody was very family. Every patio would have their own bingos and, and things like that, you know. Uh, uh, like I said, all the doors were open. You could walk in and out from the neighbour's house. and uh, It was, it, it was uh, a nice... Uh, to, to remember, uh, there was groups and, 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 and the, the, the pop music uh, because we, uh, we had the BBC and there was a few little... I used to play with a band, oh, I was only 14 when I first started and we used to do the tea dancers uh, down the chimney corner. That was oof, from, I think it was like from five in the afternoon to seven or eight, something like that. And all the youth would go. It was the only place there was, you know. So that that was quite fun. I mean, it, it kept everybody um, very united. Uh, but it was. But at the same time, it was sad and boring because there was nowhere to go. People would just go on hikes up the rock <laughs> to pretend you were going somewhere else. Uh, things like that. And, and like I said, you you would you would see the same car going round and round. Why? Why? Twenty minutes later, boom, the same car just going around like a Scalectric. Eventually, though, the pull of the bright lights of London lured Philip away with the hope that he could develop his musical career. Growing up as a teenager, enclosed in a, in a three square miles uh, area, was, I suppose, it, 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 it got everybody together or maybe united everybody because, uh, because it was straight after the referendum we voted obviously unanimously to, to, to remain British but anyway because of the closure of the frontier uh, there was nothing for, for the youth here you, you were just either if you had a if you had a car or, or a bike you would drive around in circles like an ex-electric and and it was it was a bit boring to the sense that everybody wanted to, to, to leave. I mean, uh, I, I left at, uh, when I was 18 um, to the to UK and I, and I lived in, in London for about nine or 10 years, I think, doing uh, my career, in, in which I enjoyed you know, writing songs and, and trying to make it into the music world. Uh, but yeah, it, w- it was very sad, uh, the closure of the frontier. But um, I, I remember when I used to come back to Jib, and the front was still closed, obviously, um, being away from Jib, you forget about all the political situation that Jib has, uh, the, the, the the political status that that we've, 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 uh, we we have to, to, to live with, not knowing what's going to happen, you know, uh, that sort of insecurity. Annette Tunbridge, though, remembers things differently, and rather than looking north to London, she enjoyed exploring Morocco across the Strait of Gibraltar. I know it sounds weird, but for our generation, the ones who are now in their 60s, it was almost like a sideshow. Uh, One, because Tangier suddenly got very much more interesting, because we used to go on the ferry quite a few weekends over. Tangiers was quite an exciting place in those days. 
um, because there was an American sector, a French sector. It was still not the broad sectors as before, but there was still a hint of it. We used to be able to get the records from the States literally on the same day they came out in the States, long before anywhere in Europe, including the UK. So we were up to date with the music, the fashion that was happening in the rest of, of Europe. Uh, so we didn't feel isolated. Along with her husband Paul, Annette says there were plenty of things going on for young people to throw themselves into. There was a lot of things organised for youngsters. There was dances, Christmas dances, summer dances, discos, tea dances. So our weekends, our weekends were busy because there was tea dances either in the Picale in the casino or down in, in La Caverna or in the DSA. the DSA, the grammarians. All sorts of places had things happening. I mean, nowadays, hardly anything happens for... They call them events now, I suppose, but they're the same as what we were. We used to get together, uh, dance to music, uh, then go to the Wimpy Bar, then go to the cinema. Uh, same old... Loads of different bands. There was always something happening. So it, it sounds weird, but probably the, the older ones might have been a bit more bored, but we youngsters... Weren't. Jackie Vila was just one when the frontier gates closed. She spent almost her entire childhood behind the closed frontier. She remembers a happy time, but says it could get boring and created a hotbed for gossip as well. I do remember the closed frontiers. And yes, there was a feeling of being very safe. Um, the whole of Gibraltar was our playground. Um, doors were left open. There was a whole community spirit and that was very nice. But on the other side, if you had a, a, a great spirit of freedom, like I do, and a lot of my friends did, it did generate, I would say, if I dare say it, a, a sense of boredom. And I don't know if a lot of people will agree with me or not, um, of the repetition of doing the same thing weekend after weekend. Um, my my mum's family were are Spanish. So all our summers were in Spain. So we never got to do the Disneyland trips that all my friends were doing. We never got to go to UK because all our money was spent going to visit the family in Los Barrios, which is a tiny little town. And there was, if there was nothing to do in Gibraltar, there was even less to do in Los Barrios. Um, I, I also feel that um, at the time, because the neighbours were so much on top of each other, that it generated quite a bit of gossip and being... Um, in each other's houses and you know the neighbor, the doors were open neighbors would just come in and it was just and I did not like the gossip I remember that as a young child um, so it did have its advantages we grew up as a community but I think on the whole on the whole uh, I just keep wondering what we would have been like if that had remained open and how possibly a mindset was had regressed a little bit. I don't, I, I don't know if I should even say this aloud, but now that I'm older, it just makes me wonder what we would have been like and what opportunities there would have been for us and what our relationship would have been had the frontier remained open. So I'm full of what-ifs. For one teenager, a childhood spent moving around Germany and the UK with her forces family had been one of freedom and exploration. However, that came to an end once the family relocated to Gibraltar to be near her mother's relatives.
For 16-year-old Tina Orciel, her sudden change of circumstances was a bit of a shock to the system. I came back when I was 16 actually to live here. Frontier was closed. And coming from living in England and having space and to a closed frontier where there was like nothing. And it was just like very hard, very hard. How did it compare then being here behind a closed frontier after spending your childhood with freedom to go wherever you wanted to? That's right. Well, I mean, it was different. We had the beaches, we had the sun. That was a novelty for us. (laughs) And um, I went to work in the Kalesha Palace. So it was like... I was meeting English people and I had my own way, you know, of dealing with it. But, yeah, it was very difficult sort of not having that space and not being able to go across to Spain as you do now. So that was one of the big hurdles that that we had to overcome and accept for my mum to be here with her family. It was just a sacrifice that, that we made and... And then, and then coming back again to live in Gibraltar, I mean, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else now. In spite of their happy youth behind the frontier fence, Annette and Paul Tunbridge decided to move to London with their young sons to experience life elsewhere for a while. Every summertime they would return for several weeks so their children wouldn't lose touch with their Gibraltarian relatives and so they could all be together again. It was during one of those trips back home to Gibraltar that the full force of the restrictions hit them hard and led to a very eventful flight. There was five babies in arms. I'll never forget that number. It was one of those things that, you know, that stays in your mind. We were delayed in in London for whether it was technical reasons or God knows, I don't know what it was. Uh, Perhaps it was because the weather was bad in Gibraltar and they were hoping for the weather to sort of ease off a bit. Uh, anyway, our flight was due to leave London about 11 o'clock during the morning. And we didn't leave till about 7 o'clock that night. But we did. We, we left. And we f- flew down. We presumed thought to Gibraltar. But as we got nearer to Gibraltar, the weather was really, really bad. And in those days, uh, all the flights that were diverted were diverted to Tangiers. Uh, sometimes you had to stay overnight in Tangiers, sometimes you had to get a ferry back, or sometimes you just stayed in the tarmac for a little while until the weather improved, you had a window, and then you flew back to Jib, in, from Tangiers to Jib. So it, it varied. You knew there was a bit of a magical mystery tour, but it was, you know, it was part of the procedure when the weather was bad. But uh, Tangiers was closed. The airport was, was, the weather was so bad in Tangiers that it was actually closed. So we were, the announcement over the, the tunnel was that we were heading for Faro. Ten minutes into the, into the journey, then we get another thing, says, um, we are now heading towards Malaga. And uh, I later found out that there was no, not enough fuel to get to Faro. But never mind, we were heading to Malaga. Everybody's expecting, because the front is closed, remember, it still hasn't opened. Um, it wasn't partially open for, for, for people. No, it was closed still. Um, and um, we all looked at each other and said, Malaga, we haven't landed in Malaga ever, that we know of. So we could see Malaga, but we weren't landing. Uh Anyway, eventually the, the pilot says, um, brace yourselves, we're landing. That was his words, brace, we're landing. I thought, 
What do you mean brace? We don't have to brace to land, we just land. Little did we know he'd circled Malaga till he had no fuel left because his Mayday, Mayday, Mayday had been refused. It was Mayday, Mayday, Malaga, flight, blah, blah, whatever, whatever procedure you go through a Mayday to be asked, you know, to give given priority to land, he was denied. So basically the pilot landed without permission. We didn't know that at that moment because then we really have been <laughs> really, really scared. We just thought, well, we've been given permission, we're landing, that's it. You know, people on a plane don't have much of an idea of what the procedures are, especially those years back, perhaps. Now we, we, we're a bit more on the know with the internet and all that. Anyway, we landed and we were in the, on the, still on the plane an hour later, an hour and a half later, two hours later, we were still sat down. So we all looked at each other and said, well, obviously they're not used to a flight and they need to get things right. <sighs> Doors opened and we were, the Guardia Civils were at the top of the no, stairs. No. Guardias with, with guns there, big guns. And we were told to leave the, all our belongings on the plane and just come away. Down. I mean, my handbag with me. Had passports and things like that, but if you had any other hand language, you couldn't bring it down. So we went out and were taken to the carousels. This, by this time, it was about two o'clock in the morning. Um, nobody in Gibraltar knew where we were because we couldn't phone them or tell them where we were. I presume the pilot had told air traffic control here what was happening, but our families and people who were waiting for us, nobody knew. They didn't know where we were. And for some reason, they weren't being told where we were. That must have been terrifying for them. That was very terrifying for them because we would have been in the bottle of, bottom of the ocean for all they knew. Um, anyway, we, we were taken to the carousel uh, where you got your uh, suitcases from. Waited for a little while. Nothing was happening. So people started sitting down. Um, there was a toilet. So because we didn't have any water, people were getting water to drink for the children. There was quite a few children. And like I said, five babies in arms. Luckily, one of the mums had brought the baby back with her and she had a tin of, of baby powder milk and she had two bottles, which she actually was the one that was... The babies had started to cry. So she they were sharing the bottles to give the babies some food. Um, but anyway, we waited and we waited and we waited. It was early hours by then. Eventually, the women travelling with children were allowed to leave the airport and were taken to a nearby hotel. Several hours later, they were joined by the rest of the passengers. They stayed there overnight, but were told they weren't allowed to leave the hotel building. They were effectively being detained. The following day, they were loaded back onto buses and returned to Malaga Airport to resume their journey. In front of us was the aeroplane. The aeroplane was parked right up to the departure lounge. It was, we could see it from there. And as we thought, well, that's it, you know, we're going to go through the, the normal things of, of our passports and the passenger list and that and that, and we're going to embark and go, go to fly to Gibraltar. Little we know there's still another bit of the saga left. There was a few hours there where we were actually watching our aeroplane being searched from top to bottom. But it wasn't being searched against us, it was being searched because somebody had tampered with it while it was on the tarmac. Goodness. And the pilots weren't happy. There was something not quite right, and and so they had the the, the 
the relevant people in the airport looking at the whole of the airplane like you know the technicians everything looking at everything so that took a few hours we remember we were given some vouchers to get some lunch for the kids and something to eat but this time the kids were running right around Malakatimach airport <laughs> literally <laughs> And all sorts of, you know, all sorts of things. People were thinking all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Oh, my God, you know, what's happening? You know, why? But anyway, eventually we got on the plane. And I always remember it was about 17 minutes or something like that from Malaga Airport to Gibraltar. I always remember that the flight steward, you know how flight attendants will smile through anything and everything. The stewards were all sat in the jump seats, on the in the landing seats, with the with the um, seat belts on, as white as sheets. I mean, we were like not really too bad, but they were they their faces were like, this is my last moment in time. You know, I'm not going to survive this kind of face. So when we looked at each other and saw their faces, we thought, please, don't 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 even think about it. Because it's just not, doesn't bear thinking about. But anyway, we landed in Jib. All the people, every, the, 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 the airport was full of people waiting for us. Everybody crying. We were fine. I mean, we'd gone through, the kids had gone through an adventure. Uh, us older ones were cursing and blinding the Spanish authorities. Uh, because it could have been a lot easier. But within the circumstances, okay, you know, fine. Most things have happened to people. But of course, the people here were absolutely distraught. And we hadn't realized how distraught they were because they hadn't had any information. They knew that we went trying to land in Tangiers and we couldn't. But after that, they'd lost track of us. There was just silence. There was just silence. Uh, so that's, I suppose, one other episode that I had within a closed frontier. Not in Jib, but travelling to and from Jib. Thankfully, such eventful and frightening experiences appear to have been rare. Sports and social clubs sprung up on the rock during the closure, as did many dances and other social events. Gibraltarians made the best of their situation and looked at ways of entertaining themselves and their families as well as they could. Paula Galliano remembers many parties during the closed frontier years. I won't say it improved our standard of life, but it changed it. We, we entertained at home. We had cocktail parties, garden parties, um, lunch parties, dinner parties, and, and, you know, in each other's homes and just made the best of it. The only thing was with children, the weekends were a bit of a thing. We, we used to get in the car and drive round and round the rock and you'd find everybody driving round and round the rock. Another person who looks back fondly at the time is Eileen Gordon. She remembers happy times. Actually, if you look back, they were probably the best years as a, as, a, as a society because we looked after each other, we tried to make the best of what we had and be inventive, you know. I think it was very good, actually. It made us stronger. Prior to the closure of the frontier, young people would often find their future partners in Spain, but all that stopped once the border was shut. Former government minister Luis Montiel believes that led to a strengthening of the Gibraltarian identity, especially among the young people. With the frontier closure, that everything ended, you know. So it had to be homegrown, so to speak. And that is the essence of, of our development, young people. And it's, it's one of the faces of 
making the Gibraltarian. Need to look after your own interests, you know. Prior to that, the older generation will say that the war, the evacuation, and the right to come back home was another element, perhaps even the, the, the first element, of, of making the Gibraltarian. But I contend that our part, the youth part, post-frontier closure, was the other aspect of the creation of the, or not so much the creation, but the uh, enforcing the, uh, the Gibraltarian uh, identity. For people who lived behind the closed frontier, life had many positives and negatives, but there was a common feeling of defiance that Gibraltarians would make the most of what they had and would not be beaten by the actions of Franco. This continued even after his death and once the democratically elected new Spanish government had come into power but maintained the blockade against Gibraltar. My thanks to everyone who contributed to this episode. A full list of those who took part can be found in the show notes for this episode at gibraltarstories.com. Thanks also to the Gibraltar National Archivist Anthony Pitaluga for all of his help while I researched this project and for allowing me to use the photograph of the closed frontier to illustrate this mini-series on the website. The recording of the late David Hoare is included by kind permission of GBC and my thanks to Philip Valverde for allowing me to use his performance of Going South in this series. Next week on The Frontier Closure 50 Years On, I'll be looking at the impact the border closure had on the labour force when we'll hear more from William Surfety, who sadly died not long after I recorded the interview with him. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please share it with your friends. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Gibraltar Stories for free on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. You can also follow Gibraltar Stories on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Until next week, goodbye for now and thanks very much for listening. Gibraltar, my Gibraltar, keep your face clean. From the north side of the border My Gibraltar My Gibraltar Keep your nose clean From the north side Of the border